This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Yesterday, all we were talking about was uh, Tim Hortons and, of course, the protests going on at various Tim Hortons locations uh, throughout uh, Ontario, I guess. And uh, it's really sort of created a, a divisiveness uh, among Ontarians. Lots are behind it. Some are. Uh, but but it certainly uh, uh, put a focus on small business. And uh, it was an interesting article I read uh, earlier on today that said uh, Kathleen Wynne dividing Ontarians and uh, the new enemy is small business, which, of course, creates the majority of the jobs uh, in Ontario. Uh, that being said, it seems uh, who is capitalizing most on all of this over and above Kathleen Wynne, because it's a win-win situation for her, uh, pitting uh, you know Tim Hortons against its employees, and then just sort of stand on the sidelines and and um, you know watch the action, so to speak. Uh, but it's certainly uh, also big parts of these protests are union leaders and union organizers and such. And, of course, uh, this is a time for them to put their best foot forward and try to get as many of these people unionized as they possibly can. Let's bring in Ann Frost, Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior at the Ivy, uh, Ivy Business School, Western University, and is on the line with us now. Ann, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Yes, you're very welcome. My pleasure. And uh, it seemed that, uh, you know, post-recession and the loss of manufacturing jobs, we saw unions uh, weakened a little bit and, and had to merge as a result. Are we seeing a resurgence now, uh, especially with things like this protest against Tim Hortons? Well, I'm not sure I'd say we're seeing a resurgence yet. I think there's increased interest on the part of people who don't have a union representing them that maybe it might be a good idea. But I don't think we're quite over that hurdle yet. We still have to actually see organizing happening, and we haven't seen that yet. How difficult is it to organize small businesses? It's very difficult to organize small businesses because each of those small businesses has to be its own bargaining unit. And you have to get all those people, many of who are part-time workers, who have different shifts. You have to get them all coalesced around the same issues at the same time and get them all to vote yes, or at least a majority of them to vote yes in a union election. And that's hard. Uh, so is it worth it? I remember talking to some union leaders that, you know, the, the reason they're not into more small businesses is exactly for the reason you've just said. It's, it, it's just not worth it. It's just not cost effective. Would that be accurate? I think at the way it's set up right now, absolutely, it's not cost-effective for unions to do that kind of organizing. It's very, very expensive. Uh, are unions doing what they can to update their process, or are you know are they op- are their operations a little archaic and perhaps need to be reexamined for the new worker? Well, I'm not sure it's the union's processes. Maybe it's our our labor law. I think that's part of the problem that the unions face as well as is dealing with labor law that was written in, you know, the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, the, the workplace has changed, the economy has changed, and our labor law reflects an old economy. So explain that. Uh, what do you mean? Well, in the you know, 1940s, you were talking about organizing manufacturing, and you were talking about organizing large plants, mm-hmm. and that's not what we see today. We are looking at service occupations and small businesses and small employers, and having unions go into those kinds of places means bargaining units are very small, and the way we've asked for a majority to be you know, um, unionized at the same time doesn't always help. Maybe we should have models that say, look, Anybody can join a union. You don't have to have majority representation. The people who have voted it in say, yes, we are represented by the union, and the rest of the people that didn't, that's okay, but at least we have union representation. But that's not how our law works. But what happens when it comes time to bargain, though? 
I mean, that sounds good well, as that long is, as everything's tickety-boo, but what happens as soon yeah. as things go south? Yeah, so if you don't have a majority and it's time for the employer to pay attention to the union, you do have a problem if you don't have a majority of people saying, oh, yeah, the union speaks for all of us. But perhaps if you get your foot in the door with non-majority um, being voted in, and then you can start working on it, maybe over time you do get to that majority point. So in your opinion, it's the laws that need to be modernized, not the way the unions operate? Oh, I think there's, I'm not saying unions are blameless, absolutely not. But uh, you do see there, there have been Tim Hortons franchises that have been uh, unionized out west. And for whatever reason, that union was able to do it. They were able to get uh, Tim Hortons employees in a couple of locations to vote yes on a union ballot and now represent those workers. So it could be done. And we've seen, you know, McDonald's franchises in various locations vote unions in. So it can be done. It's just very expensive. And so we need to, and the unions need to think about how do we reach out to the workers that are in these locations. Again, they're not your... 1940s, 1950s standard, you know, I'm the male breadwinner of the family, you know, person who's in the workforce. I'm a young person. I'm a new immigrant. I'm, you know, a, a millennial. I'm a very different generation than many of the the standard union sort of um, typical union representatives are who are maybe, you know, more middle-aged people than are not the same demographic as the people they're trying to, to unionize. Is this dividing Ontarians, or is it the politics behind it that's dividing Ontarians? Well, yeah. Um, I'm not sure I can answer that question. I, I certainly think the politics are dividing people, but I also think the employer's actions are dividing people. I think how unions are responding to it probably divides people. There are a whole bunch of different cleavages we can see around this issue. What's the best way for government to handle this? Because uh, it seems that, that Kathleen Wynne, I know you don't want to get too much into politics here, uh, it seems that, you know, as soon as Kathleen Wynne came out and called them bullies, that, wow, that lit the fuse and off it went. Uh, which, again, yeah. I, I don't know if that creates more unity or more divisiveness. Uh, what can government do to try to, you know, move the discussion forward without the divisiveness? Yeah, yeah, because the, the divisiveness is not helping any of us here. I think part of what government has to look at is, you know, the economy as a whole and think about what is good, you know, what is good legislation for work in general, for our economy and for workers. And it's not just about, you know, targeting small business and saying you're doing a bad thing here. We need to think more broadly about our economy as a whole. And how do we think about creating good jobs? How do we think about moving our economy up the value-added ladder so we're not you know, there, we have very low unemployment. It's not like we don't have jobs. We just have to think about what kinds of jobs are we creating? Are we creating good jobs? Are we creating full-time, full-year, high-paying, middle-class, lifestyle-supporting jobs? I was talking. I was talking to a labor representative yesterday, and it and it, and it kind of seemed. And again, here's the divisiveness again. Uh, that, you know, uh, talking, doing the rallying cry, talking about defending the employees, which, of course, are the workers, which is, of course, what unions mandate is. That's what they're there for. On the other mm-hmm. hand, on the other hand, uh, complain to the government because there's no jobs available and so many manufacturing jobs have left the province and such. Can you play both sides of the streets? And is this part of the problem? Yeah, um, I don't think you can play both sides of the street. That's that's not fair. 
Um, and I think there is, I think the, the critique, you know, a lot of good jobs have left, has, have left Ontario, that's valid. But it's a question of what kind of jobs can we now be creating to fill that hole? And I think there is a role for government and for policy in the creation of, you know, good, high-paying jobs. And I'm not sure our government has done much around that. So your thoughts on what has become uh, obviously a flashpoint, that being Tim Hortons, how this whole thing ignited, it seems to have started a movement. What are your thoughts on this rallying cry against Tim's? Well, I think it's going to be short-lived, quite frankly, uh, because I think the employers, the small business owners, are caught between a rock and a hard place, quite frankly. I'm not sure they can do very much about... On the one hand, the, the the new employment standards law, which says the minimum wage is you know fourteen dollars an hour, and their owners saying, well, by the way, but you can't raise prices. And at the same time, the people who are all up in arms about their unfair treatment of the of the workers, are they really willing for Tim to raise prices on all the products that they you know so faithfully buy every day? I'm not sure that this is a win win for anybody. Are we focusing too much, and is the government focusing too much on Tim Hortons, which, you know, especially the rich leader, or the rich franchisees in, in Coburg and, and Kingston area and such, what about the small mom and pops that can't afford to fight this battle? Right, right, and there's lots of them out there, too. Um, and I think, again, th- those people are hurting, too, and I think there's got to be some way that the government has to recognize that this one movement that they've made in, this, in, the, in the minimum wage is great for employees, but you need to think more broadly about the economy as a whole. Where do you what think, are you doing more broadly? Where do you think this is going, in? Where will it be a month from now, six months from now, do you think? Well, a month from now, I think we're not going to see the protests anymore. Um, and I'm hopeful that this will bring about a larger conversation in policy circles about what we do about you know, the labor market more broadly in Ontario. Ann Frost has been with us, Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior at the Ivy Business School, Western University. And thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're very welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. News breaking yesterday. All of a sudden, the NAFTA agreements are are getting uh, even a little bit more precarious than they were uh, leading up to all of this. Of course, there's another meeting coming up later this month in Montreal. But there's an increasing chance that the U.S. president will pull out of the NAFTA agreement. Uh, is our country prepared? Let's listen to a clip, a couple of clips of Christia, uh, Christia Freeland. Uh, she says, either way, Canada is ready. We are close to closing a number of the bread and butter, really businessy trade chapters, and it would be great if we could make progress on those in Montreal. But having said that, uh, the U.S. has been very clear since before the talk started that invo- invoking Article 2205 was a possibility, and I think we need to take our neighbors at their word take them seriously. And so Canada is prepared for every eventuality. Patrick LeBlanc is with us, Associate Professor, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa, and on the line now. Patrick, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Yeah, my pleasure, Scott. So anything new here, Patrick, or is this the same old rhetoric? Why are we, why are we reacting differently today? 
Um, I, I don't think there's that much new, uh, per se. I mean, the, the threat of, of, <clears throat> of Trump invoking uh, the, uh, Article 2205, which is the one where they, they, he, um, he advises uh, Canada and, and, and Mexico that after six months the U.S. might pull out of NAFTA, uh, has been there basically since March last year. Uh, so it's always been hanging there. So that's, that's nothing new per se. But I, I think what, 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 what you know the fears that that have arisen uh, now is this complaint uh, or filing in a way that Canada has done at the World Trade Organization uh, just before Christmas. It was an officially announced yesterday, but it was done just before Christmas on December 20th, um, <clears throat> basically complaining about the U.S. system when it comes to countervailing and anti-dumping duties, which we have seen in, in the softwood lumber uh, dispute where the Americans impose duties uh, on our softwood lumber at, at various rates with different companies arguing that uh, basically our lumber is, is subsidized uh, because uh, most of it is found on, on either federal or provincial uh, government lands and, and that basically we're, we're selling it cheap and, and that allows Canadian companies to undercut their uh, U.S. competitors. Patrick, the- Patrick, let me interrupt there. Is yeah. that is that a valid argument? Just because our forests aren't privately owned and theirs are, is that valid? It, it has. It, it, in the past, it has been found that yes, there was to some extent uh, subsidies. Since the last round, the uh, the whole what they call stumpage fees, uh, the whole system has been changed, and 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 now all, gov- all governments, provincial, federal, are and companies are arguing that no, this this is sold at, at at market rates. But at the same time, one that has to recognize that we have a lot more wood than the Americans. And, 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 you know, in a way, if you have a lot more supply, it does make it easier to sell it cheaply. Uh, and, 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 in, and in a way, um, it's, you know, it's one of the advantages that, that we have. But uh, so far, the Americans have not been able to demonstrate that, that in fact, our, our softwood lumber is being subsidized uh, and, and that uh, it's kind of sold at, at a lower price than, than it should be uh, on the U.S. market. And, and it's interesting that, in fact, as a result of, of all this, um, the Americans have been importing wood from Germany and 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 and, and other pla- places in in Asia, as opposed to uh, imported wood from from Canada. So it's not as if it's really been helping uh, U.S. producers uh, of wood more. But you know that's that's the nature, and especially the, the, I think what Canada is complaining here is first that they're making these allegations, which are are not substantiated. But this, you know, there's a process for this where you can look at this and all that. But is that at first instead of saying, okay, this is our complaint. We're going to look into it, and then if we find that um, you know there are subsidies, we'll impose these duties to to compensate. No, what first they do is they impose the duties, usually very high, and then afterwards, after the whole process, they say you know then potentially they they say oh they'll back down and 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 withdraw the the the, the duties and say oh well you know now that. Uh, some some panel um, uh, of judges that decide, has, has decided that uh, the softwood lumber is not subsidized in Canada. Well, we have to take away the duties, but that can take years. And in the meantime, of course, they provide an undue competitive advantage to their own producers, and they do that in in other areas. You know, the the Boeing Bombardier dispute is exactly that, where Bombardier is well, sorry, where Boeing is using the system to basically try to kill Bombardier, even though Boeing has actually no claims on the C-Series. 
But, you know, they're using it, it's going through the system, and, and as we saw, as a result of all this, in a way, Bombardier decided to, to partner with, with Airbus uh, on the C-Series, and it looks like it, it might actually work. But again, the same complaint was that because the, 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 the Quebec government invested in, in, in Bombardier to try to keep the whole C-Series alive, uh, and, and the investments that, that, that uh, Bombardier had made, and in a way, the, the, the governments, uh, they claim, oh, this is our subsidies, even though, in fact, the, the Quebec government was, was just an owner the same way that you have uh, a lot of governments that own a lot of companies around the world. But, you know, that, that was considered a subsidy. But it's, it's all kind of political and strategic, and, and the Canadian government is complaining that, in fact, it's an unfair system. It's not objective. It, 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 it tends to be biased against uh, foreigners and in favor of, of U.S. producers. And that's why they brought the complaint to WTO. Now people are saying, well, if, you know, was the timing wrong? Because in a couple of weeks, there'll be the, as you mentioned, uh, a new round of negotiations on NAFTA. And uh, is that going to make it in a way more difficult for, uh, you know, in, in, in negotiating a deal with the U.S. that now the U.S. is going to, you know, in a way be pissed off and they're going to say, uh, no, 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 we're not negotiating. You, 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 you're being unfair to us and they're going to make our lives more difficult and potentially even losing some allies in Congress or uh, in other parts of the U.S. So this is becoming, in a way, a whole political game. And, and I think that's why there's, there's, there's renewed um, worry and discussion of whether Trump will actually invoke that article, uh, 2205, although it doesn't force him to actually leave NAFTA after six months. It's not like Brexit, uh, where after two years of invoking Article 50, uh, the, the Brits have to leave uh, the European Union. In this case, it just says that, well, we may leave after six months, but we may not. You know, we'll decide. So, uh, so what, Patrick? Why wouldn't Trump play this card? That's how he rolls. I mean, exactly. that, that's I, his I Trump card. Right. So, yeah, I, I mean, is is Christia Freeland and the rest just expecting him to do this anyway? Because it's the you know that's that's just how he rolls. I think they are, and 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 I think they they've been expecting that he would do it at some point. That he would try to use that leverage, as you say, because that's how he operates. And 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 I think the 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 position from the government who say okay so what do we do if he does and, and so far my understanding is nothing we'll just sit continue negotiating and and ultimately call his bluff and and I think that so far that has been the Canadians' position in saying well let's call his bluff he wants to try to pull out if he if he goes that way let's see if he can actually do it and 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 let's see what kind of backlash there's going to be from Congress from the states uh, governors companies and and in the meantime of course the Canadian government as well as the Mexican government have been uh, lobbying very strongly at all levels you know local uh, state level uh, federal level in Washington and anywhere we saw number of ministers uh, last week uh, going to various parts of the US to uh, to talk about NAFTA so in the meantime the government is, is you know trying to collect allies and, and and make the case for NAFTA which would make it a lot more you know very difficult for for Trump to be able to do that politically and especially uh, in election year because you know uh, representatives in Congress are all going to face re-election in, in the fall, uh, you know, a third of the Senate. So I doubt that these people will really want to discuss NAFTA and, and try to take positions because that, that, of course, that will probably be very divisive in, in many states where, uh, that depend on, on trade with either Canada and or uh, Mexico. 
again, we're just assuming that he will uh, bring forth Article 2205 and, and put it on a six-month waiting list. That being said, uh, like you said, once that happens, it's not clear sailing for Trump by any means. Um, w- others will fight back within his own country. So what happens when that falls flat? Now we have a scenario where a boy who's crying wolf. Wh- <laughs> wh- wh- what then? Does, well, and, and again, bringing through Article 2205, does that not actually put them in a worse scenario if, in fact, it backfires and everybody goes, okay, do what you want? Well, that's the thing, and it, it might backfire in a way the same way that Obamacare, um, the, the repealing of Obamacare yeah. backfired on him earlier last year, uh, in the sense that it, it most likely it will end up in, in, in front of the courts. Uh, because either the business groups or potentially even members of Congress will challenge his authority to pull out to pull the U.S. Um, uh, out of NAFTA, and and ultimately the, the the only court that that will you know have the authority to settle that debate will be the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, because the Constitution is actually not clear on this. It, it gives executive powers over international treaties and agreements uh, to the administration to the White House, but it gives Congress authority over. Um, uh, uh, commerce and, and and international trade agreements. So you know who who has the ultimate authority here is is actually not clear. And and the 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 the, the, on, the only institution that can decide this will be the U.S. Supreme Court. How long would it take to get there is not clear. Would it take months? Would it take years? Uh, I I would think they would try to expedite the process, but but who knows? And and in the meantime, well, companies are going to see. Okay, well. We don't know. We're facing uncertainty. Will NAFTA still exist? Won't it exist? Uh, and then in that case, you know, if, if they're saying, okay, uh, we, 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 are, we have investments planned, uh, let's say in the car industry, let's say we want to develop um, electric cars, uh, for the U.S. Mar- the, the North American market. Well, where are we going to build our plants? Are we going to build them in North America? If if all of a sudden uh, trade barriers um, show up again, or might we actually go to China or somewhere else where, in fact, we know we're going to have a large market uh, where we can have great economies of scale, and we'll just pay the transportation costs and and the fairly low uh, tariffs that uh, the U.S. imposes on 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 foreign cars um, coming, let's say, from China. So that could be. You know, in a way, it will lead a lot of companies to rethink uh, their approach to serving the, the the North American market, and it's not clear that that's going to be a win necessarily for for Trump. It's you know, he might think that um, by by pulling out of NAFTA, it will just lead more companies to to invest in the U.S. But but that's not necessarily a given. And and, and until the the whole NAFTA story is settled, I think most companies are just going to be on on a wait and see basis, and and that's going to hurt all uh, all three economies. Uh, do you think we'll see the demise of NAFTA, or, or uh, and how and 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 how much of an impact will that have on Canada's economy if he does scrap it? I, I think for now there's a, a low probability that it will happen. Uh, I'm still confident that at, at the very least we'll we'll have the current NAFTA. And, and, and if, if not, we'll have a, a modernized NAFTA. The negotiations will continue and eventually we'll get a deal. So I, I'm, I'm still optimistic uh, in spite of everything that's going on. Uh, but should NAFTA leave, um, of course, it will increase costs. Uh, for everyone, for companies, it will lower investments in North America. Uh, it, it's not, it's not going to create a depression. Uh, certainly, it will slow growth for a while. But we will continue trading with each other. That that you know that trading relationship.
relationship is not going to disappear. Uh, it's, you know, the U.S. is just too big to ignore. As much as we want to develop um, trade relations with, with other countries like China and Europe and all that, uh, the, the, the proximity with the U.S. market, the size of the U.S. market, the, the language, the distance, all these things make it easier for Canadian companies to do business with the U.S. and for U.S. companies to do business with Canada. So that's going to continue, but it will create uh, higher costs in, 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 in many cases. Uh, it will also, unfortunately, um, hurt, I think, the, 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 the good rapports that we have between our two countries and the cooperation that takes place between the two countries. And, and, and I think that's going to be the, the, the hardest thing, where we need to cooperate on a whole bunch of, of issues, whether they're political, they're security, they're economic, and, and, and I think that will leave a lot of aftertaste in, in many people's minds, um, and, 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 and who knows what kind of impact that can have. What about uh, job loss, Patrick, in Canada? Sorry? What about job loss in Canada? Well, there, there will be job losses, obviously. There, there, there are some companies that, that might decide to say, okay, well, now if there's no NAFTA, uh, we might close operations in Canada and, and refocus them on the U.S., or we might actually refocus them on, on, on Mexico, or we might actually refocus them in Asia. Uh, so it, it, it will have an impact uh, economically. It's not going to be a catastrophe, uh, but yes, uh, jobs will be lost, obviously, and consumers will pay more for their cars and, and other goods that, that they consume uh, here. Uh, you know, for years, Patrick, we've been talking about uh, other markets, opening up uh, global markets. Uh, your business just isn't in your backyard anymore. It's across the pond and such. Uh, how is this going to make America better? If, if, if the U.S. pulls out of NAFTA? Yes, yes. It's not. There's no way that it's going to make America better. Uh, it's not going to make North America better. Uh, so certainly for, for Canada, the, 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 you know, our strategy is to continue developing those links with the rest of the world because it's, it's a good strategy, it's important, and certainly it, it reduces to some extent our dependence on, on, on the U.S. economy. But uh, as I said, you know, we, we will, you know, the U.S. is just too big to ignore as much as we would like to sometimes. We can't. Uh, for the U.S., I think if it were to happen, uh, it would just reinforce um, basically the decline of, 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 you know, or at least the relative decline, if you want to call it that, uh, of the United States on, on, on the world stage, where they, they would be seen as the U.S. is becoming more and more, in a way, reclusive and, and cutting its ties with the rest of the world. And, and ultimately, others will, will just kind of start ignoring it more and more when it comes to, to um, uh, you know, running the world, if, if we can say that. And, and, of course, it would have never, you know, a lot of negative impact on, on all this sort of set of, of governance institutions like the World Trade Organizations and others that have been created in a way to manage this cooperation that takes place around the world to try to have, uh, you know, as much as possible clear sets of rules for companies and others to operate. But if the U.S. are not there, then, of course, uh, what's going to happen is not clear. The Chinese will try to push uh, in, in in some directions. Then, where you know, will the Europeans try to to counteract that? Maybe with Canada, it, it's not clear. And, and and of course, that would create uh, a lot of uncertainty around the world. And 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 you know, people. I think most people would rather have the the, the U.S. engage and invested uh, in in making the world a better place. But you know, as as if they pull out of all these agreements, including something like NAFTA, which is ultimately beneficial for the U.S. economy 
people will conclude that, well, you know, they're, they're, they're just not interested in, in, in what happens around the world. Patrick LeBlanc has been with us, Associate Professor, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa. Patrick, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. It was a pleasure, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Earlier this week, the provincial government announced changing the rules of its 10-year automated vehicle pilot project. How soon could Ontario drivers find themselves in driverless cars? How far away is that? Is it still too far away to see? Let's bring in Sunil Johal, Johal, Policy Director at the Moat Centre, School of Public Policy and Governance at the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Sunil, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. My pleasure. So what does the latest test info mean? How does this affect Ontario drivers? What does this latest announcement entail? Sure, so it doesn't mean anything right now. Essentially, the government has put out some proposed amendments for comment, and then those would need to still go through a a regulatory amendment legislative process to actually become law. But essentially, if this happens, uh, right now you can test uh, autonomous vehicles on the roads in Ontario if you've got a driver in a human driver in the in the driver's seat ready to take over in case anything goes wrong. What this would change is that you would no longer require a driver uh, in the car anymore. And you, so you would literally have an autonomous vehicle, so a car driving around with nobody uh, in it, although there would be requirements to have uh, remote communication with a, with a human who would be monitoring uh, what was happening with the car. So that's a significant... Uh, change and it actually goes beyond uh, what we're seeing in jurisdictions like Arizona and California, which uh, had had been up until now really the leaders on this type of uh, testing in North America. Even in Arizona, which was kind of viewed as the Wild West, they let anything go. They still require a human driver somewhere in the car. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the driver's seat, but you could have a person in the passenger seat or in the back seat. So Ontario is going a step uh, beyond that potentially. I can't wait till the day I can ride in the back seat of my own car. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, are we at this stage yet, or are these regulations and rules that are being put in place, guidelines being put in place for future development? Uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're there now. I mean, these cars are driving uh, in Ontario. I mentioned places like Arizona and California, and they're putting hundreds of thousands, millions of miles uh, on these test cars, a variety of different companies ranging from Google uh, to Uber to uh, a number of others. I mean, the technology exists. I think the <laughs> the kind of issue for governments to date has been, well, how how soon do we want to take those safety rails uh, off the pilot uh, projects and, and let these cars really do what they, they are capable uh, of doing? So I think Ontario is at the point now where obviously they've done some analysis and feel comfortable uh, not having a person potentially in the car at all and, and letting and seeing what uh, happens. What will this transition be like? Uh, you know, now we've got cruise control, we've got cars that'll that'll park themselves, what have you. Will this be a gradual thing or all of a sudden, hey, just like you're buying an electric car, you can go buy one that you can ride in the passenger seat. How will this transition be? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously lots of different potential paths this could take. I think, as with, you mentioned, electric cars, I mean, you see some electric cars on the roads now. You'll see them parked in certain neighborhoods, kind of as you drive, as you drive by. But it's it's been fairly slow, and you've got kind of the early tech adopters, the people who are always trying to get get out in front of everybody and try the new latest 
uh, thing uh, doing this. And I think you'll probably see the same kind of thing with autonomous vehicles. I mean, and presumably also they're going to be fairly expensive early on as well. So, I mean, this isn't going to be kind of, do I buy my... Good point. Will it be as expensive as an electric car, for example? I guess it well, would be, I would be, imagine it? it would be more expensive than yeah. an electric car. I mean, with all the technology, software, mm-hmm. and cameras that you that you require in an autonomous vehicle, I mean, you'd be looking at a higher price, I would imagine, in the early stages mm-hmm. uh, than an electric car. And that obviously would be a major disincentive for a lot of people in terms of, do I just buy a regular Honda, or do I buy kind of something that costs maybe four or five times as much? Do you think there'll be government incentives to buy these, the way there's uh, uh, huge government incentives to buy electric vehicles? I would doubt it. I mean, I think on, uh, with electric vehicles, there's the kind of climate change, environmental angle uh, to it. With autonomous vehicles, that may not actually be uh, in place. I think the motivation, and I think there'll be a, a personal motivation for people to buy these vehicles because, A, uh, it's more convenient. You can kind of take a nap in your car or do work in your car and not have to worry about focusing on the road. And B, uh, the other big game changer here is you could uh, have your car drive you to work and then send it out to make you money for eight hours until you have yeah. to drive back home. So, I mean, I don't think the government would really need to step in and incentivize mm. people to buy that because there would be a very clear profit incentive. And Many uh, people have pointed that out, that when you're not driving your vehicle, it's a stagnant investment. It's sitting there just depreciating, doing nothing. Well, yeah, I mean, for most people, I mean, probably 90, 95% of the day or, or longer. Uh, it sits in a parking spot. Your car is just sitting there not doing anything. And yeah. that's the big difference with uh, autonomous vehicles is they could be out there uh, being productive and making you money uh, throughout the day. And I mean, I think that's why initially, at least, you'll also probably see this rather than individual people be buying these cars, it'll be the large companies developing mm who have been developing the technology, deploying fleets of these cars out there so that instead of you purchasing one, you'll be using them as a cab. So you'll just kind of hop in an autonomous vehicle. It'll drop you off where you need to go. It'll be pretty cheap because there's no driver in the car who needs to be paid. It's just. Do you ever think we'll see the day, Sunil, where there's an incentive, come work for us, we'll send a vehicle to pick you up every day? Wouldn't that be something? Oh, sure. I mean, if you're a big company, if you're a big law firm or accounting firm and you you buy... You buy 30 or 40 of these things, why not? Like, hey, we'll, we'll pick you up, we'll drive you around, and you can, guess what? You can do work for us while you're commuting, which yeah. previously you yeah. wouldn't have been able to do. So, I mean, the companies who are smart will probably look at this as an opportunity to just get, get more uh, work out of their... Uh, yeah, stuff. I was going to say, it was like the old days when they said, oh, automation and, and technology, you'll only be working four-day weeks. No, they'll just fire the guy next to you and you have to do it all. <laughs> um, what happens during... We talked about the transition period. What happens during... And, and maybe this isn't a transition period because not everybody's going to have an autonomous vehicle, but what happens with the integration of real drivers and autonomous vehicles? Is that going to go as smoothly as we think? Well, that's, I think, the the big million-dollar question here. I mean, in a couple of the test jurisdictions, there have been accidents between cars, and it's not the autonomous vehicle's fault. It's because there's been uh, a driver in a regular car who kind of gets thrown off by the fact there's a driverless car next to them, and they've crashed into uh, (laughs) them. So I think there will need to be some careful thinking by policymakers. Do you maybe first have these cars mostly on highways or in set-aside specific parts of town rather than driving in mixed uh, traffic? Or do you feel comfortable enough and there'll be enough of them out there that people won't be shocked that you just kind of roll uh, them out? But I think that it'll be the human reaction to this that will be the bigger challenge rather than the technology 
uh, itself. It'll be people having to get used to the fact that mm. these cars act differently, and pedestrians as well, because, I mean, these cars are very, <laughs> they're designed, obviously, not to hit people, so yeah. pedestrians will realize, hey, if I just walk out into traffic, right. the car's going to stop, yeah. and I can just cut across on this uh, green light, which obviously you wouldn't try with a human driver because the person might be texting or... How do you swear or give the finger to a, a driverless car? But then again, they're probably driving better than you are, I'm guessing. Uh, we talked about platooning, or we've talked in the past about platooning, and, and this is putting two transport trucks, for example, together, uh, one following the other. What happens if someone decides to go between the two? Well, I mean, the way platooning works, I mean, my understanding is that you they'd be so close together that you wouldn't really have that opportunity. Or if you yeah. are doing that, you're kind of a... Taking your life taking, in your hands? You're basically saying, I don't really care if I live or die. In this situation, I mean, th- these cars would be very... The trucks would be very, very close together. Well, they have to be to pick up the draft to save the well, fuel. Well, that's the thing. They need the, they need the air draft, and if you're more than, I don't I mean, I don't know the exact distance, but let's say you're 30 feet behind the other truck, I mean, you've lost all of that advantage. Yeah. Anyways, I mean, I think they'd be close enough that maybe a motorcycle could sneak in there, but yeah. you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to try and uh, drive your Camry between those two things. Is this a job creator for Ontario? Uh, autonomous vehicles? Or, yes. Uh, or even electric vehicles? It, it could be. I mean, and I think that's exactly why the government is moving forward with these more aggressive... Uh, pilot conditions where we don't require a human in the car. And what they're hoping is that the the big players who are in this space who are currently focusing most of their attention in places like Arizona are going to say, hey, look, we can actually test with nobody in the car in Ontario. Why don't we move up there? Right. And the spinoff effects of that could be maybe they set up more R&D labs here. Uh, auto, we obviously have a fairly strong auto assembly uh, sector here as well, an auto manufacturing sector. So could we become the next... Uh, hub of autonomous vehicle manufacturing. We think that's the hope uh, of the government, but there's a lot of different jurisdictions, Detroit, California, and others who are all trying to do the exact same mm. uh, thing. So I think this is a positive step from from that regard, but it, whether this alone will be enough to all of a sudden attract a lot of investment, we, we don't know the answer yet. Uh, according to the ministry, some industry leaders predict they could go on the market anywhere from this year all the way to 2040. Can we can we zero that down at all, Sunil? When will we see these things? I mean, I think most of the the industry leaders who are commenting on this publicly are saying kind of somewhere between 2019, 2022, 2023. So I think we're looking in the next five years for autonomous vehicles to be lo- fairly available or available to a mass market audience. I don't think it'll be 2040 by any means. Uh, and that's, I mean, I'm just going based on what the folks who, who build these things and develop these things. Are these designed for internal combustion engines or are they designed for electric cars? Does it matter? I don't, I mean, it, my understanding is it doesn't really matter. The, you could, the technology would work in either uh, circumstance. A lot of the, the folks who've been moving forward with this to date are, are combining it with electric vehicle technology, but there have been some that are uh, just traditional combustion engines as well. I mean, that doesn't really necessarily affect uh, this technology at all. So you could kind of go either way uh, with it. And that, and that might also come into the cost factor where, well, maybe it's cheaper to have autonomous vehicle with an internal combustion engine rather than autonomous vehicle plus electric right. vehicle with the highly expensive battery um, systems. Uh, uh, the Globe and Mail says a Highway Traffic Act exemption would be introduced to make it legal and uh, participants would have to meet certain conditions such as 
having a law enforcement interaction plan and a vehicle communication with a remote operator. You talked about the remote. Uh, let's get back to that. Where where would the remote operator have to be? Uh, and, and can you, I don't know, in real time actually do something from a distance away? And, and what about the enforcement interaction plan? How would that work? Uh, so, I, I mean, we don't have any details around where they would require a remote operator. So would you require somebody kind of within a certain distance, like somebody who's in Ontario, or could somebody in California be driving this car theoretically or be able to take over this car theoretically? They're, up there, they're out there with the call centers. They're, you know, in yeah, some other country could somewhere. could be anywhere. Uh, I mean, so that's not clear from the rules. I mean, I think theoretically with the technology, you could have that person pretty much anywhere. I don't think it would really matter whether they were in Toronto or in Los Angeles. I mean, if the, as long as they can take over the car if necessary, that's what matters. So we'll have to see how that plays out. And then the law enforcement interaction plan, uh, very vague in the draft, uh, draft comment uh, document the government put out. I'm assuming that would mean something like uh, we've got a plan to talk to uh, OPP, other relevant uh, officials and keep them in the loop if there's an accident or something like that, or if we have a problem, we notify them immediately about what happened. But again, that's unclear, and that's the kind of detail that we'll see spelled out in the in the formal regulations once they get developed. Uh, like uh, electric cars, we, you know, we will see the technology, but will the public be jumping on board? Obviously, the greatest thing, uh, the greatest challenge for electric vehicles at this point is not only the cost, but the you know the battery storage and the location of charging stations and such. Will this be as big a transition for people from uh, internal combustion engine to electric? Uh, um, will, will the uh, transition between uh, self-driving uh, cars and self-driving cars be as large as this has? Because I think a lot of people predicted that electric cars would take off a lot faster than what they have, even with the incentive. I think it'll actually be a little bit smoother because you mentioned, I think the range issue for electric cars is a big inhibitor for people. Like if you're out on the highway with your electric car and you, you're not near a charging station, you could theoretically be stranded. Uh, whereas with a traditional car, obviously you can just kind of stop in a gas station, which is going to be fairly ubiquitous uh, on any road. I mean, if you're talking about an autonomous vehicle that you can fill up with gas uh, or is a hybrid car and you can fill it up with gas or and or charge it electrically, you don't have that issue anymore. So, I mean, this could go anywhere a regular car could go. Um, and it has so many advantages over a regular car in terms of you can just do whatever you want. You can put it out there to make money for you. Uh, so I think this is something that there's more clear um, incentives for people to move towards this type of technology, whereas with electric cars, I mean, yes, you're you're saving some money, but there are a lot of factors uh, inhibiting you actually in terms of how far you can go and are you worried about running out of uh, battery, uh, and those issues haven't really been solved yet because we just don't have a, a, a robust enough network of charging stations in uh, in Ontario, or really, I mean, for that matter, in most other countries, to to make it as easy to use an electric car as you as it is to, to use a gas-powered car. We talked about the affordability of electric cars, and then what will be eventually autonomous vehicles. Uh, will you know? Uh, lots are saying that it's going to be here in a short period of time. Will it be a case of they'll be here, but nobody will be able to afford them? Therefore, will we see companies using them first? Yeah, I Which we're that, not really seeing with electric cars, are we? No, I mean, that hasn't really been the case with electric cars so much. But I, I do think that will probably be the initial introduction most people have. It'll be these will be the new Ubers on the road uh, in a city like Toronto or Hamilton. So no longer will really have private pat drivers driving their own car around for Uber. It'll be 
500 Uber autonomous vehicles that can pick you up and take you anywhere you need to go. And then as prices come down two, three, four, five years later, people are fairly comfortable with this. They've taken it as an Uber or uh, as another kind of uh, taxi type service. And then they say, hey, maybe I'll put up some money for this myself. I can spend $50,000 and I can make back half of that money within five years just by putting the car out there as my own Uber, as my own personal uh, ride-sharing uh, vehicle. And I think that's probably what we'll see. I mean, obviously, there'll be some well-off individuals who will be able to buy these mm-hmm. early on, and they, I'm sure, will do that. Uh, they could probably afford a chauffeur, though, Sunil. Yeah, they could, <laughs> but I think it's just it's the wow factor sure. of saying, I've got an autonomous vehicle rather than yep. uh, more than anything else. And I think for the average person, eventually the cost will come down to the point where um, you will probably be able to buy these, but it'll just become a question of, well, why do you need to if it's so easy to get between points uh, using a, using kind of a, mm. a, uh, an Uber-type service, why bother spending thirty, forty thousand 40000 on your own uh, car? Good point. Uh, Sunil Johal has been with us, Policy Director at the Moet Centre, School of Public Policy and Governance, University of Toronto. Sunil, thanks for the time and insult, uh, insight as always. We always appreciate it. Thank thanks, you. Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.